This is Alan Johnson, pastor of Old Peachtree Presbyterian Church in Duluth, Georgia. The Bible is God's Word. It describes itself as living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. Therefore, any encounter with the Bible is a momentous thing because it never leaves us unchanged. My prayer for you as you hear this message is that the Holy Spirit will use it in your life to inform your mind, to feed your soul, and to help you grow in your faith in Christ. Please turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Whenever you think of the resurrection of Christ, I hope that 1 Corinthians 15 is a chapter that comes to mind. It's always helpful with various doctrines of Scripture to have and remember a key passage regarding that doctrine. Certainly there are many other passages in Scripture that address the resurrection, but chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians is perhaps foremost among them uh, for the depth of its exposition of the resurrection as well as its length. This morning we want to look at 1 Corinthians 15, beginning in verse 19, reading through 26. Hear the word of the Lord. If in this life only we have hoped in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order. Christ, the first fruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God, the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for this passage, uh, for what it affirms, for what it teaches We thank you, Father, that this comes to us not as the opinions of Paul, but as the Word of God. And so, Father, we pray that as we uh, think about it today, as we study these words, that we would recognize their authority, and, Father, that we would learn from them and grow by them and be encouraged in the study of them today. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. While the majority of professing Christians do believe in the bodily resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, there are those who would say, no, it's, uh, it's merely a symbol of, of new life. It's merely a metaphor uh, for God doing something new in us. The notorious Episcopal Bishop John Shelby Spong once proclaimed that the great heresy of evangelical Protestants and Roman Catholics is the literalizing, ouch, of Easter. In other words, the idea that we are to take the resurrection accounts of Scripture literally. Well, if that's heresy, may that heresy increase. However, it's not heresy, it is the plain meaning of Scripture, the plain teaching of Scripture, that Christ, 
bodily, physically, came out of the grave on the third day. If that is not what Scripture is saying, then language indeed has no meaning whatsoever. And we certainly see that put plainly here. As Paul teaches on the resurrection, something earlier he says in verse 4 is one of those things of first importance. That Christ died for our sins, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. It's interesting that Paul goes into his rather lengthy exposition of the meaning of the resurrection by talking about the situation if Christ has not been raised. In other words, if Christ has not bodily come out of that grave, what is the situation? Well, he describes it here for us. He says if this is the case, if Christ has not been raised, then in verse 14, our preaching is in vain, that is, it's empty, it's just words, it's meaningless. In verse 14, your faith is also empty. And meaningless, nothing. In verse 15, if Christ is not raised, then preachers are telling lies about God. If verse 16, Christ is not raised, and certainly if the dead are not raised, Christ himself is not raised. Verse 17, your faith is a waste of time. Verse 17, you are still lost in your sins. Verse 18, those you know and love who believed in Christ and died are lost. They have perished and there is no hope of reunion with them. And therefore, Paul reaches the conclusion that we read in verse 9, that if our faith in Christ is only something for this life, then we are of all people to be pitied. We should be felt sorry for because we are functioning under a group delusion, pursuing a mirage. We are wasting our time. We're certainly wasting our money. And if Christ is not raised, the only logical thing to do is live in such a way as to minimize our pain, maximize our pleasure, or as Paul put it in verse 27, uh, or rather skipping down to... Uh, Verse, uh, where is it, 32, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. If the dead are not raised bodily, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. That's the only logical position to have if Christ is not raised. But of course, then Paul immediately reverses himself in verse 20 and says, but Christ, in fact, has been raised from the dead. And so we are not to be pitied. We are to, of all people, be envied. Or better yet, we are to be joined. Because the door is open. Christ invites all who will repent of their sins, recognizing them as sin, recognizing them as an affront to a holy God, who will put their faith in Christ to come and to believe in him, and to become part of his people, to experience the new life, the salvation, and the future resurrection that he has in store for his people. Why? Because Christ, having been raised, all of the things that we just said are reversed. Our preaching is something. We have a message of substance, a message of truth. Our faith is in something real. Apostles and preachers are telling the truth about God. Christ is, in fact, raised. Our faith is the most important thing in the world. We are no, no longer in our sins under their condemnation, under their power. Those we love in Christ who have died in the Lord are with him, and we in Christ will be reunited with them one day. All of these things, in fact, are reversed. They're true. They are real. 
You see, Christ's resurrection means our salvation has been won. Now, what that means for us is that God accepted Christ's death in behalf of the sinner who trusts in him. So that if the Lord tarries when we die, we know that our soul will go to be with him. We, we are confident in that. That is our great hope, our expectation, that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. But Paul is talking here about something more than that, something beyond that. He's describing here not just our salvation having been accomplished by Christ's death and resurrection, but this. Christ's resurrection is a guarantee of our own resurrection on the last day. And you see, we need to be reminded that the resurrection is our great hope. Not just that we die and our soul goes to be with the Lord, which, thank God, is true, yet that is an intermediate state. It is an intermediate, an interim condition until that day of Christ's return and he raises up the bodies of his people for everlasting life or reconstitutes their bodies and likewise raises up the bodies of the wicked for everlasting condemnation and destruction in hell. But we need to recognize that is our hope. That's what we look forward to, a very real, very solid, very physical existence in glorified bodies that are like Christ's glorified, physical, resurrected, sinless body. That's what we look forward to. That is the Christian's great hope. We believe in the resurrection of the dead. Well, because Christ has been resurrected, we can know that those who believe in him will be resurrected. That's what Paul is talking about in these verses. And he uses three images to, uh, to teach us that, to illustrate that for us. So let's look at these verses and think about those images that Paul gives us here. First is Christ as the representative of a new humanity. Look at verses 21 and 22. Paul says in verse 20, kind of lays out his theme here, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. And then in verses 21 and 22, he says, For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Now, Paul goes back here to something he talked about at some length in Romans 5. And that is, Adam and Christ as representatives, or another term, federal heads, of two groups of people. Now, he talks about Adam as our representative who acts on behalf of the entire human race, all of his descendants. Adam, the first man, is acting for us, and his actions are our actions, and what he does we are accountable for. If he obeyed, persisted in obedience, it would have been the obedience of his descendants. But he didn't. You know full well that he sinned against God by eating from the forbidden fruit and so plunged himself into rebellion against God, brought guilt upon himself, but not just himself, but all of us who descend from him. Adam acted as our representative. So we are guilty in him. Of his sin, that original, that first sin, is our guilt too. And having a fallen nature like his, we certainly compound our guilt uh, in Adam by adding to it lots and lots and lots of sins 
of our own. But you see, Adam acted not just for himself, but on our behalf. And this is where we are by default. Every one of us, a son or daughter of Adam and Eve, uh, we inherit his guilt, we inherit his fallen nature, and we sin in our rebellion against God just as Adam did. And that's what, what Paul is referring to here. As a man came death. That's why we have death. Death came into the world through his sin, and Adam eventually died. We die. But he also goes on to say, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. So also in Christ shall all be made alive. Christ is sometimes referred to as the second Adam. And just as Adam and Eve encountered that situation in Genesis 3, where the serpent comes and tempts them, and they cave, they, they succumb to the temptation and sin against God, Christ himself was tempted, uh, certainly throughout his life, but there were times of particularly intense Temptation, we think of Matthew 4, where Jesus is led by the Spirit into the wilderness. He's weakened by 40 days of fasting, and then he faces the onslaught of the tempter, Satan, who tries to get him to sin against God at these various points. And just like Adam and Eve, he's being very crafty, very subtle. And yet at each point, Christ says no, and he answers back by quoting Scripture rightly, where Satan tries to use sin in a wrong way. You see, Christ went through the test, and he came out triumphant. He passed the test. He obeyed. He didn't sin. And he did that not just for himself. He did that for all who would believe in him. And we need to be careful. When, when Paul says, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, he's referring to all believers, not all humanity. All humanity is plunged into sin and death by Adam. That's our default position. But all who have believed in Christ, and the Scriptures qualify that, uh, are now placed from Adam as their representative into Christ. By the way, if you're not willing to complain about the works of Christ being attributed to you, then don't complain about the works of Adam, his sins being attributed to you. But the fact is, all humanity falls under one of two federal heads, one of two representatives. You are either in Adam and condemned in him, as a sinner, as a rebel against God, or you have repented, believed in Christ, and you are under Christ as your federal head, your representative. And that's what, what Paul is saying here. Adam's sin brings us death, alienation from God, alienation from one another. Christ's obedience, his resurrection from the dead, brings us life. It brings us uh, reconciliation with God and therefore reconciliation with one another. So which is it? Well, he uses this image of two representatives, Adam or Christ. Adam's sin brings us death. Christ's resurrection brings us new life for all who have believed in him. He is the representative of a new humanity. We're familiar with that, that we have a representative form of government in our civil arena, whether federal or state. We are used to the idea of representatives who act on our behalf, who act in our stead. Uh, and in fact, in the Presbyterian Church, we have a representative form of government with elders who are elected by the congregation to act on behalf of the congregation. So this is not a, a difficult concept for us. We sometimes talk about Americans having difficulty with the idea of Christ as a king because we don't have that form of government. Well, here we are talking about representatives. We should be able to understand this well enough. You are either living under the actions of Adam, which bring death, or you are living under the actions of Christ, which bring life.
So that's the first picture that Paul uses here, Christ as representative. Second image that he, he uses here is Christ as first fruits. Christ as first fruits. He actually uses this term twice uh, in verse 20. Jesus is the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. And then again in verse 23, each in his own order, Christ the first fruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. There is an order here. There is a reason that you and I don't experience the fullness of the resurrection life in Christ that we one day will have. Paul says these things happen in a certain order. Christ's resurrection has already occurred. He is the first fruits. That is, he's like the very beginning of the harvest, where enough of the fruit has come in so that those who farm the land will be able to taste it, to sample it. And from that first fruit, they can get an idea of the quality of the harvest. They get an idea of the quantity of the harvest, whether it will be an abundance or a paucity of, of, of fruit produced. The first fruits is like a forecast. It tells what they can expect to come in the, the weeks ahead as the fullness of the crop begins to come in, whether it will be good or poor, whether it will be much or little. Well, Paul uses that picture of Christ as we look at his resurrection, that he is the first fruits. He's the beginning. He is the indication of what is to come when the fullness of the harvest comes in. And you and I and all who have believed in him are going to be part of that fullness, part of that harvest that will be brought in. The first fruits, by definition, comes first. Now, when we speak of Christ as the first fruits, his resurrection is an indication of what ours will be like. He, we see in Scripture, was, was uh, still a physical body, and he appears to his disciples. He says, you know, look at me, touch me. I have flesh and bones. I'm not just a spirit. I'm not just a ghost here before you. He ate in their presence. He did, it's true, seemingly pass through a locked door, uh, not because he was less real, if he indeed passed through the door, but uh, because he was more real than that door. But the fact is he had a physical body and a glorified body uh, that was it had continuity with his old body. The disciples could recognize him. They could see that it was him, at least when it was his pleasure to let them see that it was him. But there was a continuity between the old Jesus they knew and this new resurrected Jesus. Now, Jesus had no sin to begin with, and he certainly had no sin in his glorified state. You and I do have sin, but in our resurrection, we will no longer have any sin. So we'll talk about that in just a minute, but we will be imperishable, as Paul goes on to say in this chapter, incorruptible, fully righteous in Christ now, and in our, and not just in our standing, but in our actual behavior and actions and words and thoughts. That's the staggering. It's, it's hard even to think about that. It's like a fish trying to imagine not living in water, what it's like for us no longer to be affected by or living in sin. And yet that will be the condition. Christ's resurrection not only is the indication of what our resurrection will be like, it's the guarantee of it. The first fruits pretty much guaranteed what was to come. Whether it will be much or little, good or poor. It guarantees what would come. You just wouldn't have a poor first fruits and then an abundant harvest. The first fruits was the guarantee of what was to come. And so it is with Christ. The fact that he was resurrected guarantees that all who are in him will be resurrected as well. Just as in his death and resurrection now, 
we've died in him and been raised to a new life, a changed life. So our future resurrection at his return is guaranteed. It will happen just as surely as his own resurrection happened. And so that's what Paul is describing here, this, this, this resurrection, Christ as the first fruits, that at his return there will be a general resurrection, again, of the righteous to eternal glory, of the wicked to eternal hell. But there will be this general resurrection, and certainly to life eternal for those who are in Christ. Two images so far. Christ as our representative. Christ as the first fruits of the harvest of which we will be a part. The third image that he uses here is that of a king. Christ as the victorious king of a new kingdom. Now, we're familiar with that. We we see that in the Gospels. Jesus says, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The kingdom has come as Jesus himself has come into the world. But this kingdom will come into its fullness with the return of Christ. Look at verses 24 through 26. Paul says, then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule, every authority, every power, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. Christ is now reigning. This this period begins with his resurrection and with his ascension to the right hand of the Father where he is reigning and subduing his enemies under his feet. What do I mean? Well, this is a reference to Psalm 110, and Christ is even now governing the events of history so that the kingdom of heaven expands, it grows, it is taking in new people all the time. Uh, Someone once put it, Satan is losing far more people every day to Jesus than Jesus is to Satan. We sometimes think, well, you know, I just don't see that. It seems like everything's just getting worse and worse. Well, maybe from a, from a very local perspective, or even a national perspective, that's, that's true. But worldwide, the kingdom of heaven is growing tremendously. And throughout history, the kingdom of heaven has grown tremendously. Look at how it started with, with this group of 12 followers that Jesus picked, which seemed so, who seemed to be so wavering and so slow to understand and so fearful. Well, look where we are today. Look how the kingdom has grown and how it has spread and how even uh, today it continues to grow as people come to saving faith in Christ. And increasingly in the southern hemisphere and increasingly in places other than the west, Christianity is continuing to grow and expand rapidly and powerfully. Yes, sometimes with shallow teaching, but uh, the, the desire is not to... Uh, write that off, but to strengthen it, to, to equip and to encourage and strengthen uh, where new life has begun. And so Jesus, as it says in verse 25, is reigning until every one of his sheep has been brought into the fold. And then we read in verse 26, the last enemy to be destroyed is death. We need to remember death as an enemy. Death is not natural. It's not part of the natural life cycle. Death is an intruder that came in with sin. Death is an enemy. Death is wrong. Death is a perversion. And we know that in the face of death. Because the scriptures tell us the Lord has put eternity in our heart 
and death is an outrage in God's creation. And we read here the last enemy to be destroyed is death. You see, the death and resurrection of Christ guarantees the death of death. When will this happen? What will happen at his return when he comes back? Um, at his coming, verse 23, those who belong to Christ, then comes the end when he does these things. But how will death be destroyed? Well, in principle, it's already been destroyed in Christ's death and resurrection. That's why the believer in Christ need no longer fear the grave. But it will be destroyed absolutely when Christ returns and in the resurrection, when death itself over our bodies will be undone, will be overruled. When our bodies, also redeemed in Christ, is snatched back out of the grip of death. As Jesus says, no, death, you shall not have these who are mine. And even those who are not in Christ will be raised up bodily to everlasting condemnation, as we've said. But the last enemy to be destroyed is death itself, as Christ reverses death and resurrects his own to everlasting Life, Death is the result of sin. Christ has dealt with sin, and therefore he has dealt with death. And at that point, verse 24, the end when Christ delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule, every authority, every power. You see, that's when Christ will finally be able to hand to his Father the finished work, the mission accomplished. That work of salvation that began in eternity past, accomplished to last in joy in heaven, the new heavens and the earth for until eternity future, forever and ever. Then he will hand it over to his Father, having accomplished fully, finally, forever, the work the Father gave him to do. What a glorious, glorious day that will be for Christ and for all who belong to him. So in short, the resurrection of Christ, Easter, means this. It means Christ won. The grave is empty. He came out. God reversed the verdict man placed on him and raised him from the dead. It means the defeat of death. Easter means Christ is winning. He is bringing people into his kingdom. He is conquering his and our enemies every day. You see, not only the defeat of death, but the plundering of death. And it also means Christ will win. The day is coming when the trumpet will sound, announcing the arrival of the king. All his enemies are destroyed. He has come to judge them. He has come to save us. And at that point, we have the death of death. Staggering concept. When death itself is undone and is destroyed. Well, just as certainly as Christ rose from the dead bodily, just as certainly as Christ ascended into heaven bodily, Christ will return to this earth in glory bodily, physically, clock running in time and space history. Dear friend, are you prepared for that day? Are you prepared to face Christ as the King of kings, as the Lord of lords? When you stand before him, will you look upon him as your Savior, or will you look upon him as your judge? Will you bow before him gladly as your king, or will you kneel before him grudgingly as your conqueror? Which will it be? The Lord Jesus says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. 
What better day to receive that rest than on Easter Sunday? And certainly what better day to celebrate and enjoy that rest than on Easter Sunday, the day that we look forward to and commemorate and celebrate the death of death in the death and resurrection of Christ. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you that Christ has indeed won the victory for us who have believed in him. And Father, we recognize that we acknowledge his resurrection every Sunday. But Lord, on this Easter Sunday especially, we celebrate that great fact of history that Jesus came out of the tomb alive, victorious, and he did it for us. And we give praise to you, Father. Pray that we might celebrate to the full the life that we have now and forever in him. In his name we pray. Amen.